Hello and welcome to You Just Got Homeschooled with RJ. Um, today, I want to tell you a little bit of a story, um, but it starts with something I saw in the news. And the story is going to be about what I did yesterday, which was I went to the beach, but about that and not about that. So <clears throat> this is one of the ways I just want to like kind of talk through with you how homeschool looks a lot of time, at least for me, and um, how it kind of comes together organically in a way that you very rarely get in a classroom setting and, and why that's beneficial um, to students. So first I want to talk about like how people learn things. Um, if you've ever watched, watched the movies uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, you know the scene in the beginning with the, the teacher up in front saying, Bueller, Bueller, over and over again. And that's kind of the stereotypical or one of the stereotypical things we think of as teachers. Um, and it makes sense because we've all probably had one of those, one of those kind of boring rote. Um, I had a professor who read off notes that were older than me, literally. Like you could see the pages, they were yellowed and old off of a legal pad. And it's not that the information was bad, but it wasn't engaging. Um, but then we also have this other concept of teachers that's a little bit more like Miss Frizzle um, from Magic School Bus. Um, if you haven't seen those, I'm sorry, you should probably go watch them. They have a new version out uh, on, I think it's on Netflix. My kids love that one as well. And the difference is really between the two depictions of teachers is whether or not the teacher is passionate about their subject. And I'm getting to this because of the story I'm, I'm going to tell you about what happened yesterday. And, but I just think about that. Like, who do you learn better from? Someone who reads off information from a, a series of notes or from a page, um, or someone who is engaging in and is passionate about what they're teaching. So this is kind of what happened yesterday. So we went to the beach. Um, it was enjoyable. We went with some friends and um, there's a lot of learning experiences, especially for my boys. Um, where we went to the beach, there is a jetty. And so me and my friend took our boys, so my two sons and his two sons, and we went out on this jetty. And so for most, I mean, my, my boys are five and three and his are five and four. And so uh, we took them out on this jetty and, you know, there's parts where it's fine and then there's parts where they have to kind of like jump and there's parts where they have to learn to skip and then there's parts where they pretty much have to be carried or, you know, kind of have jump assist in a sense. Well, they'll jump and we'll kind of like holding onto their arms, swing them over to the next rock. And it's kind of dangerous at times, but I think it's a good experience for them and for us. But along, while we're doing this, we're looking at the waves and talking about that. Um, where we were at there at Garibaldi, which if you don't know what Garibaldi are, they're the state fish of California and they're bright orange. So it's really hard to get a clear look at them from a jetty, you know, when they're kind of darting in and out of the rocks. But basically, they kind of look like giant goldfish in the water, and they're really easy to spot. So we're pointing those out. We're looking at the crabs and the, the mussels and stuff on the rocks. And we're going out. And then um, just so happens that the harbor where we're at is, or the jetty we're at, helps form a harbor. And the harbor is twofold. On the south side of the harbor is a civilian port, basically, or harbor, and kind of on a sub-cycle, you can't really see it from, from the civilian one, but on the other side, there's a Marine Corps one. And so while we're out on this jetty, this amphibious assault craft, um, along with two support craft, make their way out and then make their way back. And so we're able to point out to you know our boys, oh, that's a, an amphibious 
assault craft. It's got wheels and a motor and see how low it's sitting in the water. That makes it hard to hit if people are shooting at it and stuff like that. So just lots of learning activity activities, um, how to pick good rocks to climb across, like how to get from point A to point B. And especially for these little boys, you know, like it's really helpful for them to, to have someone teach them. Like you can go from this rock to that rock. And if you get stuck, right, you can't, you can't figure out where to go directly in front of you. Look around and see, well, if I go to my left or to my right, if I go up, if I go down, if I go backtrack a little bit, is there a better route? So we do all of that. Then we get back, um, you know, we spend some time in the water and that's all fun. And then we get in the car to go home. Now, this is where the story kind of kicks off. Um, on the way to where we were going, we passed one of the California missions, which was a mission set up by the Spanish, um, by uh, Father Junipero Serra, uh, when the Spanish controlled California, and he made a line of missions up uh, through, through California, mostly along the coastal region, in order to minister, you know, bring Catholicism to the Native Americans. And the mission that we passed is San Luis Rey, which is the, it's called the King of Missions, and it's the largest mission. And we had done a field trip to there earlier in the year. And my daughter, on the way to the beach, had seen a fire station not that far past the mission and go, that looks just like the mission, and kind of pointed out the, the architectural features that made it look like the mission, which I f- thought was funny because a couple episodes ago I talked about Spanish style and, and understanding it from a historical context and stuff like that. So she points that out. But we're on our way back home, so we're driving back past this, and, and I forgot what exactly prompted it, but my daughter was like, we were in a conversation, she's like, well, no one, like, why do you need to know history? It doesn't It's not important for today. Now, being a history major... Um, and just being who I am, I was like, no, 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 I'm not letting this one go. Right. And so I started to go in, get into, or, or go into why it's important, why history is important and not just important, like in a, oh, you ought to know this, but important in like everyday life. And so I, I basically started explaining about how you are a product. We are all a product of our history. And I talk about stuff like why it is that we eat more wheat rather than rice and how that's a product of geography and history and why um, we eat lots of Mexican food in Southern California and other people don't. And, you know, the clothes we choose to wear, what we consider appropriate, the language we use, um, where, you know, where we get our ideas of freedom, all those type of things. And one of the things I ended up bringing up because I had seen it earlier on in the day in the news is this. I saw an article yesterday that was claiming that only 42% of Americans knew what Auschwitz was. And 66% of millennials, or I should say, let me rephrase that. 42% of Americans didn't know what Auschwitz was. And 66% of millennials didn't know what Auschwitz was. And so I use this as a jumping off point. And like, now Auschwitz is not something that comes up in everyday conversation. But just in case you don't know, Auschwitz was one of the death camps that the Germans used to exterminate the Jews. And so, and, and the reason why this is important is this, and I'm trying to, and I was trying to make the point to her that we're all part of a cultural context. And if we don't understand it or we don't learn it, then we're in some ways bound to repeat it because we don't know even what we're talking about. And so we don't get to learn the lessons. And so I brought up the fact that, you know, Auschwitz is this 
this place of death for millions of Jews, maybe not Auschwitz specifically, but the Holocaust is a place for millions of Jews to die um, because of a cultural norm um, that was present in Germany and then you know, became a political movement and, and, and grew in strength and all that kind of stuff. And, but then I brought up the fact that there's a couple of people in kind of the public eye um, that have recently been called Nazis. Um, one of them is Dennis Prager, um, who created uh, Prager University. He's a political pundit. And the other one is Ben Shapiro, who is also kind of uh, a political pundit. And whether or not you agree with either one of these men, the fact that they have been labeled Nazis is ridiculous, seeing as they're both practicing Jews. The only way you can make a claim like that is if you don't know what a Nazi is. Because one of the founding or core features of Nazism is hatred of Jews. And ironically, both of these men had actually lost family members, like blood relatives in the Holocaust. So it doesn't seem appropriate to label them Nazis. And yet, generally, the people who are using that phrase are people that would be categorized as millennials. So, and, and if the, you know, the, the report that I saw, or the, the news article that I saw are correct, that means 66% of millennials don't know what Auschwitz was, then no wonder they're calling people who are Jews Nazis, because they don't know what it means. And it seriously makes me wonder what they were taught in their history classes. Because really? Like, name-calling and, and all of that is, is okay? Like, just to label someone? Um, something as heinous as that? Um, without regard for who they are or, or who the people you're using as a label. And so, and that led to a conversation about Auschwitz and what it was for and, and then the progression, the historical progression, where it started out with, well, really our problems are not our problems. They weren't caused by us. They were caused by this other group of people, right? So it's a, a shifting of blame. And then a, well, we're not, you know, we know they're causing problems, so we just want to, we want to know who they are, and then the, the forcing them to, to emblazon or you know, wear a patch that demonstrates or shows the Star of David that shows that they're a Jew. And then, well, we, we, you know, these slight incremental, we just, you know, we're not really sure it's a good idea for them to live in the same places as us, so let's just put them all together in one place, just so we know where they're at. And then Glasternock, where they go and break the shops and assault people and things like that, and then eventually, oh, we just need to, we need to, to make sure they're not part of our society and forcing them into labor camps with the intent of working them to death. And then when that wasn't working fast enough to create these extermination camps. I'm like, this is why history is important. History is important because we now have people today that are using the term Nazi to describe Jews and just using the, the term Nazi to describe anyone they disagree with without seeming regard for what a Nazi actually is or what they actually intend, you know, what they actually believe. And it, and it saddens me and it hurts me to know that this is something that is, that ought, I mean, if 66%, if we're talking 66% of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is, one of the, one of the two I can think of off the top of my head easily, death camps, what were they taught? How can they protest anything if they don't even know the context with which they're protesting? Who are they following? And how can we claim that they were educated? At all, really. 
Why? Because they can add, they can subtract, they can read, but they don't know what they're reading or they choose not to read stuff of, of, of value. And so I, you know, I went on, on that and then talked about um, other examples of, of historical figures and, and why they're important. And it actually led me to a conversation on leadership, which is somewhat ironic because I wasn't really aiming for that initially, but the conversation kind of moved there. I talked about leadership and what it means to be a good leader. And at that point, we were kind of talking about a political process because we were talking about the Nazis and how they rose to, uh, especially under Hitler, rose to uh, political prominence in Germany and stuff like that. And then I'm like, well, let's talk about leadership. What is leadership about? Like, who does a leader actually work for? She goes, I don't know. And I'm like, well, think about it. Who does a leader actually work for? Um, Is a leader's job to do whatever they want or to do what's best for the people they, they lead? She's like, well, to do what's best for the people they lead. Well, what kind of people become leaders? You know, like, is it typically the person who, who says, I have the right answer, or the person who says, we need to figure out the right answer? She goes, well, probably the person who thinks they have the right answer. Okay, if they think they have the right answer, and they want, and are they generally the kind of people who, who are like, hey, what do you think about this? Are they the kind of people who are like, no, I have the right answer, follow me. And she goes, well, you know, people who are like, I have the right answer, follow me. And so, like, well, then you have people in, in leadership oftentimes, not all the time by any stretch, but oftentimes who think they have the right answer and think that they should be in charge because they have the right answer rather than the people who think there needs to be a, there needs to be a different answer and are willing to ask and learn and help, right? And, and not necessarily follow, but lead for the purpose of the people that they're leading. I'm here to serve you. Right as a leader, my job is to serve you, not to be served, and so, and and to explain that, to exemplify that, as a you know, historical example, because again, I'm a history nerd, and we had, that's what started the conversation. I talked about Alexander the Great, and how Alexander the Great was um, the son of Philip II of Macedon. That when his father died, he inherited an army, and it was a good army, but he made it better, and he did that by a couple different things. One, he increased the length of their spears. Um, that's a simplified term, but it serves for what we're talking about. He increased the length of their spear so that there was more points you had to get to to get to the first Macedonian soldier. Second off, he made them carry their own armor, right? Their own their own stuff, and that allowed them to reduce the size of the military um, and makes his people stronger. And then I talked about how he basically took this relatively small grouping of people, roughly about twenty five thousand soldiers, and attacked the largest empire in the world that he knew, which was the Persian Empire. And as the story goes, he sailed across the Hellespont, which is the, the gap between um, mainland Europe, so Greece or um, former Constant or Constantinople, now Istanbul, and Turkey, what is now Turkey. He cast his spear onto the shore and said, but basically by right of conquest, I'm here to conquer you type thing. And then he engaged in, in, a, in a very long war against both Persia and eventually Egypt, and then moving on to um, uh, Afghanistan, through Afghanistan and into India. But this is what I was trying to make the point of. Unlike generals, like when we think of general, we think of someone who, you know, like Napoleon, who stands in the back with his three-pointy hat and makes decisions, right? He's moving blocks on a map somewhere, saying, take this unit and move it here, take that unit and move it there. And, he, and they, they play this game, or you know, a general plays things on a map, but he doesn't actually do anything. And I was like, and this is what um, Alexander the Great did a little bit differently. 
is he would prep his battle, right? He would, he would choose the battlefield. He would set his, his men up. He would call the commanders together and say, okay, this is what I want you to do. This is your job. You know, I'm just making stuff up at this point, but just as an example, okay, your job on the left wing, I want you to press, press forward as much as you can up to 500 yards and under no circumstances, let someone get around you to your left. And then tell the person on, you know, in the middle, this is what I want you to do. And the person on the right, this is what, what you to do. And then what he would do, which is very different than generals normally, and even generals today, generals pretty much of all time, a very different concept, is he would go, he would take his horsehair plume. Like if you ever think of uh, like a helmet with a big plume down the middle of it, right? Oftentimes it's depicted as being red or something like that. This big helmet with these tall you know, feathers or horsehair on it, oftentimes in, um, you know, in, in a design that would stand out to say, here I am, this is, you know, this is the king, this is, this is Alexander. He would go then oftentimes, most often, join his cavalry unit and engage in the battle. Now, and so I, and I'm asking her these questions, like this is what he did. Now, what does that do to the men who are following him? And she's kind of like, uh, I mean, she's 10, so I, I don't really blame her. So I had to like, you know, kind of prompt her a little bit as far as by asking her questions. If you're, if you're a man, right, a soldier who fights for Alexander the Great, what does it mean to you that he's risking his life alongside of yours? And she's like, well, it means a lot because it's not just me risking my life. It's him risking his life and he's willing to risk his life, in, you know, at least in theory for me. Like, exactly. And what does that mean about the way that he treats or understands his, his other commanders, the people that work for him? She goes, well, he must kind of trust them. Exactly. He's the leader. He's the king. He's the general, right? And yet, what does he do? He says, I trust you enough, commander, to do the job I asked you to do. And I trust your men enough to do the job I asked you to do. And, and then he goes and he fills his part. And the thing is, is if my king is fighting alongside me, that is a whole different ballgame as far as morale goes than my king standing behind me somewhere. And if anything goes bad, he's going to run. He can't run. He's in the front line with me. And there's multiple times or multiple accounts, I should say, of Alexander the Great almost being killed in battle. And there's at one point, I think it's when they're either in Afghanistan or in India, where his, his unit or his men almost mutiny or they start to mutiny. And so what he does is he gets up and he in front of them, and he strips down basically naked and says, look at my scars. Right? Look at these wounds. This one I got at Gugamela. This one I got at this battle. This one I got at that battle. And basically shames them and says, I've been here with you. I fought alongside you. Right? I risked my life with you. How dare you abandon me now? And it worked. And they, they basically repented and <laughs> went back and, and he continued his campaign. Now, I brought that up as a, an example of what a good leader can look like. Now, now, granted, he thought he was God at one point. Else, there's a whole bunch of issues. But, but think about that. Right? Do our leaders do that? And that was the point I was trying to make to her. Is that like, we live in a society where we don't learn history. And when we don't learn history, we don't learn our identity. And when we don't learn our identity, we don't know what to believe. And so when we don't know what to believe or how to believe, we start to believing anything. And then we get people calling Jews Nazis. And that sounds ridiculous, but it, because it is ridiculous. Like, really, people? 
That's what our society has come to. And that's the education system we have. Where you have university professors or high school teachers or whatever else promoting kids functionally not learning. And granted, to some degree, it's not their fault because it's the state who decides, oh, history is kind of a you know, secondary subject. You learn English and math first. To what end? What, what good is a person who doesn't know who they are? And so, and then from there, I actually took it a little bit farther. And I'm, I'm going to get a little bit more religious here for those of you who um, like that. And for those of you who don't, I'm sorry. But I said, like, it's kind of funny because Alexander the Great, what he did by standing up there and shaming his men is somewhat similar to what Jesus does later on, except without the shame. And so, because you see Jesus in, um, after he's resurrected from the dead, and um, the first time he did that, the apostle saw him, but Thomas wasn't there. And then the next time Thomas is there, and, and previously Thomas had said, you know, I'll believe when I put my fingers through his hands and my hand in his side. And Jesus comes walk, walking through a locked door and says, here I am, Thomas, come here, put your fingers through my hands and your hand in my side. And he goes, basically, I believe. He doesn't even have to do it. Like, and, and like, and that's, and, and I brought this up to her because I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe in what the Bible says. And, and so I, I explained to her, like, this is kind of what Alexander the Great did, except instead of Jesus saying, how dare you not believe me? He said, please come look it. Look, see what I bore for you. Look, see the scars, the, the wounds that I have that I, that I earned for you, that I took for you. And so, and that turned into an, an, an opportunity to talk to her about that. And so, which is good, but it kind of comes full circle because we do the same thing. History is important because there's a context. And then we were driving home and we saw um, some political stickers, which then prompted another conversation about uh, a particular political candidate and their belief system and then comparing it to what's going on right now in another country that is who that follows the same philosophical idea of economics as the, as the sticker we saw. You know, and, and then how that's happened in other societies that have also followed that philosophical concept. And so, <clears throat> and I don't want to get into all of that really at the moment, but, but that's why like, I love homeschooling is because I can take this and go like, no, I'm going to teach you something real here. And this is why history is important, right? It's incredibly important because it unifies everything in a sense. Because it explains why you like hot sauce on things and not gravy. I grew up eating gravy on my rice because my family is Southern and my wife thinks that that's weird. (laughs) You know, why is it that you dress the way you do? Why is it that you speak the language you do the way that you do? You know, whether it's a, it's a large, you know, capital H history of, of cultures and movements and wars and great leaders, or whether it's a family history, right? The age old story of, you know, uh, a husband and wife are newly married and they go to get and put the ham in the, the oven and she cuts the ends off both sides. And he goes, why do you do that? And she goes, I don't know. That's how my mom did it. And I, she calls her mom and goes, mom, why do we cut the ends off the ham? You know, my husband's asking and I don't know the answer. And she goes, I don't know. That's how my mom did it. And so the, 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 the young woman calls grandma and says, why do you cut the ends off the ham? And she goes, because it didn't fit in my pan otherwise. And yet it's handed down as some sort of tradition because grandma didn't have a pan big enough, right? But those history, that history affects us. And it's important for our identity. And if we don't know who we are, we're lost. 
And when we're lost, we do dumb things as individuals because we are not, we are herd, we are, we, we are herd animals. We don't really like being alone. And we do things for reasons we're not even aware of because those things are caught and not taught. Right? And I think most of education is caught and not taught. And so this goes back to the idea of passion. Right? It's oftentimes better to learn, most often, better to learn from someone who is passionate about their subject than someone who is not. And it is better to learn because you are passionate about it rather than the passion being forced upon you. But the benefit is, is if someone is passionate about their topic, you are more likely, partly because you are a herd animal, to mirror their passion even for a moment in order to grow or like in order to learn. And so that's why I kind of like figure out what works for your kids and try to help them in that. But that doesn't mean don't share your passion, right? Don't find people who are passionate about what, whatever it is your kid is passionate about and let them teach. Like there's a lot of opportunity here. I mean, I look at, I know someone um, in particular who um, he hasn't, he's done so many different things in his life, but he does so few of them now. He's rebuilt cars. He's been into firearms. He's built boats. He's done all sorts of stuff. And yet all of those things, he built a house, right? There's a lot of things obviously working with his hands. Um, But all of those things corresponded with seasons of people who like to do those things, backpacking, camping, things like that. And so he'd be like, well, these really, this group of people is really, you know, my friends are into sailing, so I'm going to get into sailing. My friends are into restoring cars. I'm going to get into that. My friends are into firearms. I'm going to get into that. My friends are into this. And even now, even the one thing that has kind of worked its way through his entire life is music, still the same thing. My friends are into music and I'm into music. And so you can kind of create or you, know, you, you, you become passionate about the things that people around you are passionate about. And so keep that in mind and, and understand that passion is important. You're impa- whatever you're passionate about, there's a decent chance your kid might be too. And if they're not, that's okay. Help them figure out theirs. Maybe they can teach you something about their passion. And maybe the reason why I, I have been blessed to be kind of in the situation that I am as far as, um, as a person is because my family history is, was relatively well laid out for me and I was given the opportunity to explore it further. And, and so I kind of you know, knew who I was but also wanted to know who I was. And then secondarily, um, I, developed a, I cultivated a passion for history because I had teachers who were passionate about history. And through that passion, I've been able to access all sorts of things. Theology, ecology, I like, I love biology. I thought I was going to go into zoology for a long time. Um, history, science, art, technology, all those things, because I love the problem solving. I love the history. I love the looking at humans and going, what are we like as individuals and as groups? How do we operate? Sociology, anthropology, like we can go through a bunch of different ologies and they all fascinate me. And I read through things like National Geographic or I go, I have, one of my favorite websites is phys.org, which is P-H-Y-S, I think that's right, like physics, um, .org. And it's just science news. That's all it is. And sometimes I'll just find, my wife will be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just scrolling through science news just because I like it, right? All different types. It just intrigues me because we are so creative as human beings and we are so Involved, and we have so much power to change, and yet we hamstring ourselves. 
right? If you think, I don't know, historical context of hamstring, because again, history person. If you take an ox or a horse and you cut the tendon on the back of their legs, their hamstring, like think about your Achilles tendon, right? You cut that, they can't walk anymore. If we hamstring ourselves by not learning history, we're not going to get very far because we're going to devolve into name-calling, into bigotry, into hatred, simply because we're unwilling to take the time to recognize where we've come from and what we're like as human beings. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, I know it was kind of random and, and seemingly, uh, I don't know, it's, it's very much me. Let's put it that way. Um, random and, and, and running all around, the, all around the place. But I think it's important to recognize that that's what schooling looks like sometimes. At least for me, that's what schooling looks like. It's a conversation comes up and we talk about it. And because I'm passionate about this, I'm able to, you know, normally she complains to things. And normally when I try to teach her something in a book, she doesn't like it. But in this particular case, she sat there and listened and answered. And I didn't have to fight her about it. I didn't have to like poke her or prod her. I just get to you know ask questions and she answered them because she was engaged because I was passionate about it. Like, no, 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 you can't, you can't underestimate the importance of history because it dictates, or not dictates, but it informs everything. And so... I hope you enjoyed this. Um, please like, subscribe, stars, reviews, whatever that looks like. Follow us on Instagram, uh, Homeschool Podcast. And I hope to see you next time.